We are going to be in Revelation chapter 3 and finishing up the seven churches. It's pretty exciting. We've gone through uh, the six previous ones, and now that we're on the seventh, we're going to see a major transition in this book, but this is going to be the last sermon in Revelation for the year 2021. So we're not going to continue Revelation until 2022. It's going to be wild. So looking forward to it. Just a few weeks. And uh, January 5th, we will be back in here and, and getting right at it, okay, for a Wednesday night. So excited to dive in Revelation chapter 4. And then actually, I'm going to be on a ski trip. And so while I'm on the ski trip, Pastor Laramie is going to come up and preach. But it's going to be about Revelation, but it's going to be about a theology of worship that we gather and we understand from the book of Revelation, specifically that one of the chapters we're covering, which is chapter 4, and then also chapter 5. He's going to be looking ahead to chapter 5, and then I'll come back and preach on chapter 5. So, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. We're getting to arguably probably the most popular of the seven churches, at least in modern times, of a church that's talked about. And why is that? Well, there's this imagery in there, uh, a couple reasons. The imagery of them being lukewarm Christians, but then also of Jesus, this imagery of him standing at the door and knocking. This is a verse that even Billy Graham would often use in his evangelistic messages to beckon people to come to faith in Christ. And so, some notable things about this church, there's actually no commendation. God, God in Christ has nothing good to say about this church. That's not good, right? We've already seen that happen with another church uh, in, in previous sections here. Well, Laodicea is another one of those churches. They actually receive a severe rebuke, but then a call to repentance as well, you'll see clearly in this text. So, if we're to summarize maybe the state of this church or how this church handles itself, they're a church that's self-sufficient and self-satisfied. Can you say self-sufficient? Self-sufficient. Self-satisfied? Self-satisfied. That's exactly the state of this church, a self-sufficient, a self-satisfied church, one that's not living for Christ. Now, the context of the city of Laodicea, it was between two other cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Uh, Laodicea was on, in the Lycus Valley, and the Lycus River went through it, and it's not really actually a good river to drink from. It's quite a dirty river, and so they weren't really able to use it for drinking water. So the two other cities, Hierapolis and Colossae, had aqueducts that fed water to them where they could have drinking water, okay? And so we're going to talk more about that in a moment because the text, I think, is drawing some important things out. But the city was also known for its medical industries, okay? Uh, and what's really key with this medical industry is they actually discovered, or at least were famous for at the time, uh, using salve to anoint people's eyes who had eye diseases. And so they found some cures for eye diseases that were known there. Uh, also, this was a city that was well known for its worship of Zeus. So let's get to the main idea of this text for the original audience. This is my summary statement of what I think the original meaning for the audience 2,000 years ago what it, who is for. So you ready? This is what it says. That Christ wants the church of Laodicea to see their need for him and to be eager for restored fellowship with him. I'll say it again. Christ wants the church of Laodicea to see their need for him and to be eager for restored fellowship with him. So diving right into our text. Verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So we see really clearly here, once again, you'll remember, 
this phrase, the words. It's that authoritative, strong statement used only eight times in the Bible, seven times right here in Revelation. These are strong, assertive, authoritative words that are being used. But notice how it's described, the words of the amen. Now, we see clearly in our text... The words of the amen, that's used in a sense of a personal pronoun kind of way, right? It's, it's, it's referring to a person. It's referring to a title or a name of somebody. And so we see here that Christ is the amen. The amen. So, or sorry, it's used in a noun form. So this is a person. The amen is a person. And who is this person? It's Christ. It's Christ. Let's look at some cross-reference verses that draw this out a little bit. Um, describing more of who this amen is, Okay. Um, go to Isaiah 65, 16. Isaiah 65, 16. And this is what it says. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now you're saying, what does this have to do with our passage? Well, when you're saying amen, you're saying, let it be so. Right? When we pray and we say, in Jesus' name, amen, we're saying, let it be so. And it's, and it's a way of declaring the faithfulness and truthfulness of God, the character of God, and saying that our prayers are in accordance with what God has said. So it's, it's, it's like a form of clo- closing out an oath here. And so we see that clearly in this text, Isaiah 65. Um, when we take an oath, we swear by the God of truth. The God of truth. And so when we say amen, we say our prayer to the God of truth. And so we also see, uh, for instance, if you go to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11. 19, verse 11. Look at this text, and it describes Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. We'll stop there. So you see clearly in this text, Jesus is the faithful and true one. He is the Amen. And notice, what does the text say? The words of the amen or the amen, the faithful and true witness. So this has to do with God being true, with God being trustworthy, with God being exactly who he says he is. You know, um, the, the Proverbs say, many a man can proclaim his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? It's a rhetorical question. So what's the, what are they saying? People can all day say, hey, I love you, man. I love you. I love you. They say something. But a faithful friend who can find, it's so easy to say words. It's so easy to say, I love you. It's harder to be trustworthy. It's harder to be faithful. And so we see really clearly in our text that when Jesus is described, he's someone who's faithful. He's not someone who just says, I love you. He is someone who tells the truth, and he is someone who comes through with his promises. He keeps his word. He's faithful. We've all been let down at different times, have we not? We've all maybe had someone make a promise to us and not keep it. I know I've made promises that I haven't kept before. Maybe you've made promises that you haven't kept before, right? We've all been guilty of that. We've all not been perfectly faithful, but Jesus is perfectly faithful. Some of you guys have trust issues. I think everyone to some degree does, but some of you guys have trust issues with people. You don't trust people. Maybe you don't trust your friends, or you don't trust your teachers, or you don't trust your parents, or you don't trust your pastor. You don't trust. But you know something? All those people I mentioned are going to let you down at some point. They are. 
Even people you really care about and love, they're going to let you down at some point. But you know who's never going to let you down? It's Christ. Yes, yeah, Jesus. He's never going to let you down. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who is faithful and true and as a witness this is really key. Remember, we, we went back on this in Revelation chapter 1. Go to Revelation 1, 5, describing Jesus as the faithful witness. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And now, what is the job of a witness? They testify to what they've seen and what they've heard, right? Well, Jesus, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. And back in our text for tonight, what do we clearly see here? He says, I am the, the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness. And you remember in verse 15, he says, I know your work. So he's going to testify to what he knows clearly about the church. We're going to get there in a second, because I don't want to skip this next line in verse 14, the beginning of God's creation. Hey, does anyone have a Bible translation that might say something different? If, it, if you do, shout it out. Revelation, the very end of verse 14. What does yours say? The ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation. That's right. What translation is that? The NIV. The NIV, yeah. So that's not necessarily an inaccurate translation, and I want to tell you why. There's a Greek word used there. I'll spell it out for you in English. A-R-C-H-E. All right? It's where we get our word for ark, you could say, uh, in English. But also the word for ruler. The word for ruler or beginning. It just depends on the context you're using it in. So we have many words like that in English. Uh, for example, I just said one, for. You could say the word for, but if I'm just saying it, I might be saying a number, right? F-O-U-R. Or if I'm using the word for, I could be using it in an explanatory way or a way that's functioning as a basis for something else. I mean, there's so many different things you could use for the word for. There's a lot of other words like that, but I, we won't go down that trail. Um, so my point is, this word arche, this beginning of God's creation, this is actually a really great verse for Christmas time, right? Because we like to celebrate what at Christmas time or Advent? What are we celebrating? Jesus' birth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like Santa Claus. I think Santa Claus, <laughs> Santa Claus takes away from Christmas. But you know who I really like? I really like St. Nick. I really like St. Nick. You want to know why? Because about 1,700 years ago, there was a guy named Arius. And Arius taught this doctrine called Arianism. It has nothing to do with the Nazis, guys, okay? Arianism. And Arius taught that Christ was the beginning of God's creation in that he meant that Jesus was the first created being. Guys, that's, that's a big old H word. That's heresy. Heresy, okay? That's really, really bad. And you guys know why I like St. Nick? Because when he dared to espouse that Christ was created, St. Nick got so mad, he got up and he slapped him. He slapped him. Santa Claus! I mean, St. Nick. He slapped him for that. He did need a good slap for that. You don't do that to Jesus, right? So anyway, that's just fun. I like to say that for fun. But um, it truly happened. Now, it's so offensive for someone to say that about Christ. You want to know why? Because Christ has clearly revealed himself as being God. And God doesn't have a beginning. God is eternal. Can you say eternal? He is eternal. And because God is eternal, and Jesus says he is God, and has proclaimed and shown himself to be God, he cannot be created. Let's go to Colossians. Everyone turn your Bible. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. 
There's four passages like this. They're called the, the, passage, the Christological passages, or for, to kind of use it more simpler terms, the passages about the deity of Christ, or the divinity of Christ. Colossians 1 is one of them, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, and John 1. Okay? Now, here's this one in Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God. So God is invisible, but we see God when we see Jesus. He's the image. Notice this phrase, though, the firstborn of all creation. You're like, Travis, I thought you said that Jesus wasn't created. Obviously, if someone's born, they're created, right? Yes and no. Obviously, Shiloh is the firstborn child in my family. We witnessed it. He was born. But he's human. Jesus is God. And what's really important about this text, this is the text that Arius got slapped for because he took it out of context. So what do you guys know about firstborn children in the ancient world? And this is actually practiced to some degree today. Nikki. They were, uh, they were like the future head of like the entire family. That's right. Future head of the entire family. That's right. They got the most inheritance. They got the most inheritance. So both of those things are true. So as the firstborn, he get, he'd be the, the future head of the entire family, the one in authority, or the one in rank. When you use that word head, he's talking about authority and rank. So the firstborn had the greatest rank. So what's Paul saying in Colossians? He's saying Jesus has the greatest rank. There's nothing greater than Jesus anywhere. He is in rank above all. So as the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation. So in other words, and this is how theologians talk about it, Jesus is the agent of creation, meaning it's through him that the world is made. Okay, it's through Jesus that the world is made. He's the firstborn of all creation. Let's keep reading. For by him, all things were created. So Jesus, we see that. There's the agency again. Jesus is the creator. And for all, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Notice this, the things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Remember, agency, but notice purpose for him. Did you guys know everything was created for Jesus? Everything. Everything. Think, think of something, and that was created for Jesus. Think of anything. That was created for Jesus. And any sinful deviancy off of anything you thought of that might be sinful, like that's a perversion or an absence of the good that should be there. So God created everything. And everything is made to glorify him. That's why he made everything, to glorify himself. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. There's our word firstborn again. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We look at this passage and we see a beautiful, crystal clear picture of the deity of Christ. Now going back to Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So what's he talking about in this passage then? Well, I believe he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus being the dawn of the new creation. Okay, that Jesus is the head of the new creation. So think about it like this. In how many days, answer this question, how many days did it take for God to create the world? Seven, seven. Se well, seven days, but what happened on the seventh day? 
He rested. He rested. So what day of the week is the first day of creation? Hmm? It's Sunday. Because the Sabbath will be Saturday, seventh day, right? So that's how we know. So Sunday is the first day of the week. Okay. When was Jesus crucified? A Friday. When did he rise again? What was he doing on Saturday? You guys see a pattern here? So when Jesus rose again on a Sunday, he was the firstborn from the dead. He ranked in the new creation that dawned. Look at this passage, the beginning of God's creation. What's he talking about? The new creation. Jesus is the king. He is the, he is the firstborn in rank from the dead. He's the dawn of the new creation here. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. He, by his resurrection, he's the beginning of God's new creation. Now let's go to verse 15. We've seen these things about Jesus. He's a faithful, true witness. And because he's a faithful and true witness, he can say this next phrase. He says, I know your works. Remember, Jesus is omniscient, or that's our big word for meaning he's all-knowing. He knows everything. He says, I know your works. Now, let's describe these works. You're neither hot, or neither, neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. He wants them to either be cold or hot. So you're like, wait, what's, what's this talking about? What does he mean by they're, they're cold or hot? Well, let's, let's get them a sweater or maybe take their, you know, actually, they're not cold. He wants them to be one or the other, right? Sorry, I thought about my Bucky sweater and I just started talking. Um, maybe I'm feeling hot in my sweater. I need to take it off, but, but I can't. So, all right. So because you are, verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So, have any of you ever done something, like, weird, like, you got a bottle of water, and you get in the car, and then you never drink it, and then you go somewhere, and you get back in the car, and you're like, oh, I could probably still drink this, and you go to pick it up and drink it, and you're like, man, it's not really cold anymore. It's kind of lukewarm, or maybe it's hot at that point, and you're like, this, well, it's not really boiled hot water, so it's no, I'm not having tea with this, right? It's kind of, it's lukewarm, right? It's no good to drink. You don't want to drink that, right? And, and, I don't know, has anyone ever had that experience where you might have drank some lukewarm water and be like, this is gross, and just spit it out, anybody? Yeah. See, you kind of get the idea of how unpleasant it is, right? Well, remember what I talked about in the beginning about Hierapolis and Colossae? So the city of Laodicea didn't have good drinking water. They had to get it from Hierapolis or Colossae, from aqueducts that stretched eight miles to get there. And it was hot in Hierapolis, it's an easy way to remember it, and cold in Colossae. Easy way to remember that as well, right? The, the H alliteration, right? So Hierapolis had these baths that you can actually go to today, hot springs, and um, they're beautiful places today. But they, back in the day, people would go there. It was kind of like a natural jacuzzi or hot tub. It was like a really purifying place in the ear for your body to have the, the different chemicals in those hot baths and everything, and it was actually good for you. It still is good for you. Um, and people go there for that reason, that hot water was a, a great thing for them. It actually had a purpose, and that's what I want to emphasize. The hot water had a purpose. The cold water in Colossae was great for drinking water. It's refreshing. Uh, many of you play sports, and when you're, like, you're parched and you're hot and you need something to drink, that cold drinking water is, ah, oh, it's refreshing, isn't it? It's refreshing. So the problem with this church, though, is they're neither hot nor cold. They're useless. And what Jesus says about them, he says, look, so because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What tense is that in? 
the I will spit you out of my mouth. Is that past, present, or future? Future. future. So it's obviously hasn't happened yet, but it is a threat of judgment. It's a threat of judgment. I will spit you out of my mouth because of their current state. That's a major problem for the church. Jesus' words now make sense. What does he want them to be? He wants them to be intensely hot or refreshingly cold. And they're neither. They're neither. You see, let's look at verse 17. It further breaks us down. And this is, this is almost explaining why is Jesus using this analogy. This is an analogy or a metaphor he's using. Look at, look at what the, what's the problem then. Well, for you say I'm rich and I have prospered and that I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We'll stop there. We'll look at verse 17. Their problem, their problem was not reflected in their self-perception. Notice, they saw themselves. The text, look at very clearly. They said, I'm rich. They said, hey, we're good. I'm good. I'm rich. I prospered. We're doing great. Everything's going well in my life. I'm, I don't need anything. That's a problem. That's a problem. And guys, the American church often is that way. We think we don't need God. We got everything handed to us pretty easily today. And the problem with the church of Laodicea is they said, look, I got, I got this. I've seen some pretty annoying things out there, even in relation to Christianity. But they'll say, like, two things I need in life, Jesus and therapy. And they're trying to be, like, cute about it, right? It's like, no, you don't need that. You don't, it's not Jesus plus something, okay? It's Jesus plus nothing. Like, you only need Jesus. Now, Jesus has provided things for us, okay? He's provided things by his grace. He's provided for us to have families, food, shelter. Those are all good things. I'm not harping on that. I'm also, I don't think this text is also harping on richness or poorness. It's not sinful to be rich. It's sinful to love money. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Big difference. And so the problem with them is not what they have. It's how they view what they have. You guys see the difference there? It's not what they have. It's the problem. It's how they view it. They say, I need nothing. What are they saying? I'm self-sufficient. How many times do we wake up every day and we think, I got it. Maybe we, we wake up brush our teeth, have breakfast, go off to school or go off to work, and you don't even give a second thought to God, acting like he doesn't even exist. Maybe we might even call you a Christian atheist. You say you're a Christian, but you don't even act like he exists. Is that you today? Obviously, what I just said is an oxymoron, but we look clearly at this text, and they saw themselves as self-sufficient. They saw themselves as not needing God, and you know what the problem was, the way they viewed themselves? The truth is, they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a lot of problems, isn't it? It's a lot of problems that they have. And clearly here in this text, Jesus is trying to point it out. He's trying to counsel them. I want to turn to Hosea 12, verse 8, because this is going to talk about Israel and their own self-perception. 
And I think it's an apt picture of the state of Israel and the state um, that's similar to the church of Laodicea. He said, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So he thinks himself to be blameless. He thinks himself to be fine. He's like, I'm wealthy. I'm good. Self-sufficient. We see that in the Old Testament as well. But back to our text. What does he say? He says, I counsel you. Now this word for counsel. So we get this idea to instruct. You know, if you've been here on Sunday morning, I mean, last Sunday I promoted it, but the ACBC Counseling and Discipleship Conference. We use that word counsel today and we immediately think uh, psychology and a, or a psychologist, sorry, and you lay on a couch and they sit behind you and you kind of share all your problems, your deepest, darkest secrets, et cetera, et cetera, and it's, and it's just kind of strange. And that's not counsel. That's not counseling. You see, to counsel means to just give advice. And we all give advice, whether good or bad advice. Is our advice grounded in the truths of the Word of God? Or is our advice grounded in how we just view life, ourselves apart from the Word, or is it grounded in another worldview? What kind of advice do you give? What kind of advice do you give? That's really key. You need to be asking yourself, because you're going to have people come to you, even if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to help people, <laughs> let's just put it that way. If you're just honest, you're like, I don't want to hear people's problems. I got enough of my own or whatever. You know, you don't want to help people. Well, someday someone's going to be honest in front of you and say, man, my life's tough right now. I'm going through this tough problem. And you're just like, I'm just doing my work over here. Like, why are you talking to me? You know, you might have that kind of instance, right? And it could be an opportunity for you to say, well, tell me what's going on and be a listening ear. It could be an opportunity for you to love them and encourage them, all right? And, or you could see something that's, listen here, something that might be dangerous for somebody, something that might be deadly to their soul in a way. And you might try to give them counsel away from that thing that could be destructive. And, you know, maybe you'd be like, oh, I know it's wrong, but I'm not going to say nothing. But think about how you could have maybe prevented something from happening. You know, so I would just encourage you, you know, I've shared this story before, but, you know, I was a teenager in high school. I was working at Winn-Dixie Marketplace, and I had, I was a bagger, a grocer. Some of you heard this story before, some of you haven't. But there was a girl there who was a cashier. And every time on break, I'd see her with her boyfriend. Well, one day he wasn't there, and I was out getting carts because they had nothing for me to bag. And I was pushing the carts in, and I see her crying in her car. And I go and ask her, hey, what's wrong? And she says, well, I'm pregnant. And she's in high school. And she says, if I tell my mom and dad, they're going to kill me. i got to get rid of this baby. And I knew what I believed. I believed abortion was wrong. It was sin. I, I believed that God loved that baby and loved her. And in that moment, I could have been like, wow, that's really tough. i got to push these carts. I'll see you later. <laughs> I could have done that, right? I could have just ignored it. Or I could, have not, I could have seen her crying and been like, oh, she'll be all right. And just moved along with my life. But I didn't. I saw an opportunity as a 16-year-old kid and just asked. And I didn't expect to come, come forth what came forth, but I got to counsel her. I got to tell her, hey, keep the baby. Your mom and dad are not going to kill you. She's like, well, and I saw on the back of her car, she had the local Christian radio station sticker on the back of her car. So I assumed, okay, her parents are probably Christian. And I said, listen, I promise you, if your mom and dad try to kill you, I, you can stay with my sisters in their room. Like, just, like, it's all good, right? So I convinced her to go tell her parents, and you know how her parents responded? With love and compassion. 
They loved her. They, they took care of her. And I loved the fact that I got to graduate with her the next year. She transferred high schools, went to our high school, and that she had a little boy named Isaiah. He was born in 2007, which makes him how old now? 14. He's 14. I would love to meet that kid. Um, but he's alive today because I use an opportunity to counsel. My whole point here is you are all counselors. And when we look at what Jesus is doing here, he sees their problem. He sees their works. He sees the danger that they're in of making a bad decision, of choosing to think they're self-sufficient when they're not. He's trying to wake them up to the reality of their true state. And what does Jesus do? What Jesus does here is he says, look, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. To buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. So what's happening here? He's laying out three different things. Gold, garments, and salve for their eyes. Gold, garments, and salve. So what do these things mean? Like, what's Jesus talking about? He wants to offer them something that's going to last forever. Rewards. They're going to last forever. He wants to take their filthy garments of sin, or we would say even in this case, their nakedness. He wants to clothe them and give them white garments, pure garments, nice clothes. Maybe you've gone to a dance of some kind for school or a wedding, and you were able to get a very nice outfit. And it's different from the normal outfits you wear, right? Like you don't sit here and wear like, you know, homecoming or prom dresses up here to youth, right? That'd be kind of weird, right? Um, but for special occasions, right? Maybe you've been uh, in a wedding before. Whether, it, whether it's a little kid or it's a young adult, and you've worn a nice outfit, and there's something that's special set aside about that outfit. In the same way, when Jesus is saying, I will dress you with white garments, there's something special about those garments. You know what those garments represent? The purity and holiness of God. That Christ is saying, you have nothing, I'm going to give you what you need to cover yourself. I'm going to give you what you need that's pure and beautiful, and that's the righteousness of God in Christ. And so we continue down through this passage, and looking at verse... Um, Verse 19 here. Actually, I, oh, sorry, I, I skipped the whole thing about salve. Remember this city? The city was known for its medical abilities to heal people's eyes. Well, they thought, oh, hey, we can heal people's eyes. Think about it. The church of Laodicea and the city were probably like, hey, we got this. We can take care of ourselves. Remember, they don't need anything, they think. Well, Jesus says, no, you do need something. You can't even see right. I'll give you the salve to anoint and fix your eyes so that you can see. Remember, they thought they could see, but they really couldn't see. They were self-deceived. Can you say self-deceived? Self-deceived. They were self-deceived. So let's look at our next verse, verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What a powerful verse. What a powerful verse. Let's look at Proverbs 27, 5-6. Proverbs 27, 5-6. So real quickly, as you're turning there... He says, those whom I love. Notice it's not those whom I hate. Those whom I love. What does he do? I reprove. I reprove. Let's look at Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. This is what it says. Better, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So what's he saying? Let's just say... You have a friend, you know they're about to do something bad. And you know they need to be told, hey, stop it, that's stupid, don't do it. 
don't do that stupid thing you're about to do, okay? Now, you know that needs to be said. You know you need to confront their foolishness, okay? So you, would, you, you know you need to openly rebuke them. Because you care about them, right? But notice here, what's, the, what's Solomon saying in Proverbs? You can either say, well, I love them, they're, and you're assuming they're going to be okay. That's what's, what Proverbs is saying. Better is, it's better to openly rebuke them and have a difficult situation than to secretly hold your love for them in their heart. That's what it means to be hidden love, right? Okay, I really love that person. I really love them. Well, if you really love them, the better thing to do is actually rebuke them and make your relationship a little bit uncomfortable because you love them that much, right? So, for instance, if my kids are about to run out into the street and I see a car coming, it's not good for me to be like, hopefully they stop. <laughs> right? Let me just keep it to myself, right? That's, that's stupid, <laughs> right? You kind of you can see it, right? I would say, hey, stop! Stop going to the road! That truck's going to run you over. And hopefully they'd be like, <gasps> Dad yelled. <laughs> right? Hopefully they'd stop, right? I would want them to stop because it's better that I tell them because I love them. See, a rebuke can be loving. The purpose of rebuking someone isn't to be like, huh, I'm better than you, fool, right? No, it is to restore them. You don't want them to go the way they're going. You want them to correct, to correct. That's why it goes, even this next verse, faithful. It's a faithful thing to do to wound a friend in the right kind of wound, okay? I'm not saying you got permission to make fun of your friends, okay? I'm saying, in this sense, the wound of an open rebuke, think of the context, the wound of an open rebuke is better. It's better. It's faithful. Are you willing to wound your own friends in the right way, to tell them the truth when it hurts even? That's a key aspect of being a follower of Christ. But notice, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. They're disgusting. Because an enemy can tell you what you want to hear, but a friend tells you what you need to hear. And so, Jesus, and we sing that song, what a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus is truly a friend. The scriptures even say that Abraham uh, was called a friend of God. It means we're in right relationship, right standing with God. If you're in right standing with God, then God says here, those whom I love, I reprove. I'm faithful to you. I rebuke you when you do wrong. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now let's talk about discipline for a bit. So when we think of discipline, sometimes we think of exercising or studying, and you're like really disciplined in doing those things, right? You're, you're, you're you know, staying on top of it, right? You're ruling yourself well. So when we think about discipline, though, also we also, on the other side of that, we'll think about parental discipline. And our parents, maybe when you were little, giving you spankings, or now that you're older and spankings don't hurt anymore, right? It's, uh, you, you get stuff taken away from you. <laughs> Sorry, spankings still hurt for BJ, I guess. Uh, no. <laughs> they probably can. Um, but, um, right, so you have, you, you have things get taken away, right? You, you could have your phone taken away or a, a privilege that you have watching TV or going to hang out with your friends. Those kind of things could be taken away. That's a form of discipline. Now, why are parents doing that? Because they, they love you. That's a good answer, Miriam. Um, I'll, I'll tell your parents you said that, Miriam. I'll let them know. Let them know. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. Um, but um, discipline, uh, sometimes, and the guys, actually, this is something cool. When I first had kids, um, I was like, well, I need to read about raising kids. So I need to get better at that because I'm starting this whole thing, and I don't know what I'm doing. So um, 
I read the book Shepherding a Child's Heart. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that book. Excellent book. Uh, and in that book, Ted Tripp talks about how um, discipline is, uh, it's not punitive. Now, you guys know what I mean when I say punitive? Punitive? Who knows what I mean when I say punitive? Anyone? So it ha it's not having to do with punishment. So if something's punitive, it's like it's, it has a sense of finality to it, right? So if you're in court and you, you killed somebody and the guy drops the gavel and says, all right, life in prison, like that's it. Like you're not getting out, right? That's punitive. That's punishment, okay? But discipline is different. Discipline is corrective. It's meant to say, hey, I was going on this path, and I'm like, oh, I'm starting to veer off the path, and it's like, whack, I get spanked, right? And I'm getting back on here, right? It's like, oh, I'm taking away this thing, right? So it's like discipline is I was going to the left or to the right of the path, and I'm being told, nope, stay on the path, right? Think of the proverb. It says, train your child in the way he should go. It's a path. And when he's old, he shall not depart from it. So God disciplines those whom he loves. And how do we know this? Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Everyone turn to Hebrews chapter 12. What a wonderful passage. Verse 5, 12-5. And we're going to read down to verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, the father, he disciplines us for our good. Why? Students, right here. Why? That we may share his holiness. God wants you to be holy. That's why he corrects you when you go off the path toward unholy living, unholy thinking. Why? Why does he do all that? Well, for, all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Maybe when you respond to your discipline, you respond badly to the discipline from your parents or from the Lord. And so you sit here and you think, this is painful. It's not good for me because it's painful. Well, you know, you wouldn't be saying that if you had a large cancerous tumor like on your lungs or on your heart and you needed someone to remove it and they're going to have to rip you open to get the tumor out. Yeah, it's painful rather than pleasant. Yeah, it is. But you wouldn't sit here and push back and say, doctor, I know you could save me, but this is too painful to go through, right? No, you'd want to live, right? Well, in the same way, when your parents or when the Lord is disciplining you or correcting you, it's for your good and it's going to seem painful. It's not discipline if it's not painful. Okay? And so we see really clearly here, it has a purpose. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you're going to have a peaceful life in the sense of a righteous and steady self-disciplined life 
or maybe a Lord-disciplined, a parentally-disciplined life because you've been trained to walk rightly. Listen to your parents, listen to the Lord, and notice God disciplines you because He loves you. And so going back to our text in Revelation, those whom I love, I reprove, and discipline. So then He tells them to do something. He says, so, because of that, be zealous and repent. To be zealous means to be driven and and passionate about what you're doing. To have great zeal or to great excitement and dedication and commitment to what you are geared toward. So, for instance, um, one of the 12 disciples was Simon the Zealot. And what was he zealous for? Well, a zealot in that time was really headstrong and passionate about the Romans being removed and Jews ruling themselves again. And so they would lead insurrections and do those kind of things to push back against the Roman oppressors. And so, in the Roman government. So, that's what they would do. But someone who's zealous for Christ is seeking to live for Christ and to push back against the forces of darkness in this world by spreading the light of the gospel. So here in this case, what does he want them to do? He wants them to return to him. Be zealous and repent. Be serious about your faith and repent. Turn away. Repent's a, you know, a word that you maybe hear often, and maybe you don't often think about what it means, but to repent means to say, okay, I was going this way, and I'm changing my mind, that's not a good way to go anymore. I'm changing my mind, and I'm going to start going this way. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, okay? That's what repentance is. And so, Jesus goes on to say this. Look at this verse. It's an invitation to fellowship. Verse 20. Look at, look at your Bibles, or look at the screen. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now let's talk about this verse. This verse is often used in such a way to say, to tell people to come to Jesus, that Jesus is just knocking on the door of your heart. Now, while it's true that you should come to Jesus and that Jesus does want to have a personal relationship with you and come to your life, who is he writing to here? He's writing to the church of Laodicea. They're a church that that currently does have a relationship with God, but they're not on good terms because they've been living in sin. So what does he want here? What does Jesus want from them? He wants fellowship. Okay? It'd be kind of like this. It'd be kind of like I got in a bad argument with somebody, okay? And we are not on good speaking terms. And they decide to come over to my house and have a meal. But we're not on good terms. And the problem is me, not them. And they're knocking on the door saying, hey, I love you. I love you. I want to come in and have fellowship with you again. Do you hear my voice on the outside as I stand on the door and knock? Will you please open the door? I'm here. I love you. Uh, Look, I'll come in. We'll have a meal together. We'll spend time together. We can put this all behind us. Can we repent? Can things be made new and right between us again? That's, that's That's the picture that's happening here. Jesus loves this church. Even though he says, I will spit you out of my mouth if you continue living lukewarm like this. That's what Jesus says. He says, look, I'm, I'm here though. I haven't spit you out yet. Will you listen? I'm knocking. I'm knocking. And he wants the church to invite him in. Now when we look at this text and this idea of a feast, at the end of all things, there's going to be a massive celebration. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We're going to talk about that when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. 
And at this feast, everyone who's trusted in Christ will be there. But everyone who is not trusted in Christ will not be there. And so I want to encourage you today, as we think about this text, have you trusted in Christ? And if you have trusted in Christ, this is really important. Or if you, maybe let me say this. If you say you have trusted in Christ, are you self-sufficient like the church of Laodicea? Are you someone who, it might seem like with your lips, you acknowledge God and you believe in God? Like, you get God in theory, right? Maybe you could even tell me the gospel, but you know in your heart of hearts that you don't have a, a vibrant, active relationship with God. Hear me out here. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but what I am saying is, do you truly have a relationship with Christ? Ask yourself that question. Do I truly have a relationship with Christ? And think to yourself, do I let God in my life? Now, clearly in this text, if we even just go back, what does Jesus say? I know your works. So it's not that God doesn't know what's going on in my life. He actually knows fully. But rather, do you let yourself have fellowship with him? That's the key thing here. Are you in right standing with God? Do you have fellowship with God through his word? Hearing from him in his word. Do you have fellowship with God in the sense that when you pray, you have assurance that God hears your prayers? Because prayer is just you talking with God. You don't need me to pray for you, although it's good to pray for each other. But you don't need me to pray for you to have a right relationship with God. The Bible teaches that we are all priests in God's kingdom. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. In other words, I can go to God personally on my own. I don't have to go through someone to do that. Jesus is my great high priest. I can go to him to bring my prayers to the Father. Do you have a vibrant relationship with God? Do you have fellowship with God? That's what this text is saying today. And so, if you do... Look at the next verse, verse 21. The one who conquers. So the one who will not be spit out of my mouth. The one who opens the door as I stand and knock. This person, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We see two realities right here. We see a reality of what already is happening and something that has not yet happened, don't we? The very first part of that verse, we see what has not yet happened. The one who conquers, I will grant. That's in the future. It hasn't happened yet. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Then what is already true? As I also conquered, past tense, and I sat down with my father on his throne. Students, sometimes we talk about Jesus, and we kind of forget he actually is alive. We say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins 2,000 years ago. Yeah, he also rose again. He also was on earth for 40 days. And you know what happened after that 40 days? Before the eyes of so many people, he stood on the Mount of Olives and he ascended into heaven. And the disciples were still looking up like, wow, that's really amazing. And what happens? These angels appear and they say, what are you doing? Go, go, do what he said. And they go. And they spread the gospel from Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so for us today, as we think about this text, Christ has already conquered but will, will you conquer one day? Christ has already conquered, but will you conquer one day? And this text rightly asks the question, which we will hear for the last time, he who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You guys got ears? For seven weeks, we talked about these, these texts. And if you 
have felt conviction from the Holy Spirit about what has been said in this text and how it applies to your life, I want to encourage you to respond to that conviction. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't avoid mentioning it during life group. Talk about it. The best thing to do is to be, to be real about your state with God rather than fake it. You want to know why? Because God knows your works. He sees exactly where you're at. Will you choose to be real tonight and not fake it? Will you choose to do the hard thing and receive an open rebuke? Will you choose to believe the gospel? I think in conclusion here, this is, this is a fitting conclusion for our text tonight. It's this. Beware of being self-deceived and recognize your daily need for Christ. Beware of being self-deceived and recognize your daily need for Christ. Right? We saw this church. They were clearly self-deceived. And students, I want to tell you right now, there are some, in you, some of you in here who are self-deceived. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I know God knows. And if I'm, if I'm a betting man, I'm not a betting man. But if I were to bet, there's got to be somebody in here. Because you want to know why? When I was in youth group, there were times where I know I was self-deceived and I was living in sin, unrepentant sin. And so I just want to put before you today, for you to ask that question, am I self-deceived? Please ask that question. I beg you. Because if, if you don't ask that question, you don't know the true state of yourself before God, you might be wasting a lot of time right now. I don't want you coming up here wasting time, to be honest. I know you don't want to waste your time. You know how to not waste your time? To have a heart that is soft to the Word and can receive what the Word of God says and respond in obedience to what God has said. And to go and share with others how they can know Christ. And so... <laughs> If you're an unbeliever in this room tonight, meaning you don't have a relationship with Christ, I want to encourage you to think really seriously about your walk with Christ. Do you have a relationship with Christ today? Well, good. Are you telling people about him? Are you allowing for that fellowship to be real between you and God by you regularly being in the word, but also regularly praying to God about the needs of your, your life, the needs of others' lives, but also praying in adoration every time there is something worthy of thanking God for, which, by the way, is every day. Like that song, 10,000 Reasons Ago, there's so many things we could thank God for. Are you thankful to God? If you're thankful to God, I, I promise you, and that's a, a, an active part of your prayer life, thanks to God, you will have fellowship with God. Because the truth is, in Romans 1, the guys who became hard against God, they suppressed the truth of God, the two problems they had, they didn't honor God, and they didn't give thanks to Him. And so they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Are you wise, or are you foolish today? Be wise. Be warned by this text. And I pray that you will not be a person who will be spit out of Christ's mouth as a lukewarm Christian, but that you would be a true Christian who responds to God's loving rebuke and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and repent. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. And we pray that as we sing this final song and we reflect on the love of Christ that's clear in this text, Lord, I pray that we would respond with gratitude in our hearts and that, Lord, you would begin to continue to transform us further away from our flesh and more like Christ through your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk by the Spirit Help us to respond rightly to rebuke. Help us to know through your word and through even creation and your common grace, help us to know your love for us. 
and respond by telling everyone of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.